This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We want to continue our conversation about language and the ways that it is used to divide us rather than bring us together. Uh, After last weekend's deadly mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, President Trump finally came out to decry the rise of white nationalist terrorism. But he didn't address his own role in stoking the racist fears and divisions that underpin underpin at least some of the violence that we are seeing. It was a really startling moment of a government leader's manipulation of private actors and thoughts rather than of government to try to build support for authoritarian impulses and behaviors. And it's not the first time we've seen Trump do that or the first time a government leader has leveraged private hate the way this president has. Joining us now to help sort out Trump's actions with some historical context is Sheikha Dalmia of the Reason Foundation. She is writing about this issue uh, this week. And a little later in the conversation, we'll also be joined by Washington Post national correspondent Philip Bump, who also wrote about this recently. Uh, Sheikha Dalmia, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. So let's start with what responsibility you place at the feet of President Trump when it comes to these recent mass shootings, and especially this domestic terrorist attack in El Paso, where the shooter uh, allegedly wrote a manifesto that really calls on the very same language that the president has used. Right. Uh, he is. Uh, he leaves uh, no doubt that uh, you know he was incubated in a certain environment and climate that uh, Trump's rhetoric has in fact created. And it isn't just what Trump says, but also what he doesn't say, in fact, that creates this climate. You pointed out that it took him um, 48 hours before he condemned uh, white nationalism and put the blame where it belonged. But even before that, you know, if you have followed Trump's campaign, there's always sometimes explicit or implicit threat of violence that's encouraged. So in his rallies during uh, when he was running, he was telling his, uh, his um, you know, the people gathered at these rallies to rough up protesters who didn't like his rhetoric. Um, uh, you know, he, he has gone, since the migrant caravan situation, he has gone at uh, rallies in Florida, most recently in the Panhandle, where he mentioned that, uh, you know, painted this very lurid picture of a border under attack uh, by invaders uh, from Central America. And uh, you, what is what? Do, what can one take away from that? Basically, that if this country is under invasion, then people should rise up in arms to defend it. And as and and not just that, he also said in one of his comments that uh, you know we are the government is unable to stop this onslaught because we can't use weapons. Well, what was the meaning of this? Eric Levitz uh, at the New York Magazine had a really interesting interpretation of this, and he said that. Basically, what he's saying is that we, the government, can't use weapons, but perhaps you should. So this is all sort of, you know, very interesting mix of rhetoric and silences that he has used to produce a situation like El Paso. Uh, And uh, you say this bears the mark of authoritarian regimes, this kind of manipulation of language that 
is sort of stands apart from uh, government action, but maybe results in the same kinds of authoritarian impulses. Right. You know, one thing authoritarian figures really do well is uh, that, you know, they fail to stop precisely what legitimate governments are supposed to stop, which is private violence. And they do it through two ways. They do it through their rhetoric, as we just discussed. But then they also do it through this very selective enforcement of the law, where they will let, where they will allow private acts of violence uh, you know, that they appreciate and that serve their purposes go unchecked, which is what we saw during Jim Crow, as you well know, where uh, beatings and lynchings of blacks were tolerated and sanctioned by the state. But then the state would, you know, really drop the uh, hammer on the other side. So if blacks uh, you know, didn't work. They were slapped with anti-vagrance uh, laws. And so there is this very selective enforcement of the laws that basically nods and winks at private violence. And that, too, you are seeing right now under Trump, where private militia activity at the border has greatly increased and it's being tolerated, even as children are snatched from the hands of migrant parents for very minor infractions. Mm. So it is this, you know, very interesting mix of language, selective enforcement of the law, uh, you know, that Trump is sort of uh, bringing to bear right now. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Sheikha Dalmi, a senior analyst at the Reason Foundation. We're talking about uh, President Trump's words after the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton over the weekend uh, and the way in which he has used language uh, to inspire perhaps some of the white nationalist uh, sentiment that we see around the country, uh, the way that he is sort of encouraging private action that yields authoritarian outcomes as opposed to using government action, which is uh, something that we've also seen this president and other authoritarian kinds of leaders uh, do. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think uh, about what the president said about what happened over the weekend. Uh, do you think he is responsible in some way for the recent mass murders in El Paso and in Dayton? And why do you think that? Or if not, tell us why you don't. Uh, also, how do you think Americans should respond to racist and xenophobic rhetoric, especially in the wake of these mass murders uh, over the weekend. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, continue to call us and tell us about how you feel language is being used to either include or divide right now in the political and cultural narratives that are unfolding in the country. Do you feel separated by the things that people are saying about who's American and who's not, for instance? Do you feel uh, included or separated when people are talking about issues like uh, gun control uh, or uh, gun gun freedom? Do you feel uh, separated when people talk about immigration? Uh, 
are we using words in a way that uh, furthers the idea of inclusion of one America, or are they being used to divide? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I also want to welcome into the conversation here someone else who is writing about this issue. Uh, Philip Bump is a national correspondent focused largely on the numbers behind politics for The Washington Post. Philip, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, you write that Trump deploys rhetoric and advocates policies that are at times explicitly focused on race. Uh, how does he use these prepared speeches on race and violence to his advantage? And uh, also, why isn't this backfiring on the president the way uh, a lot of people, I think, would assume that it would? Well, I think that the, the way that he uses these prepared speeches is, is pretty obvious, particularly by now, four years into his his tenure as a, as, a, as a political figure. I mean, he essentially, what he does is he will, once he faces criticism for uh, comments that he makes about race or religion, uh, he, he gives one of these prepared statements, he reads from the teleprompter, and essentially then his allies use that as something to point to, to say, look, he's not racist, look what he said in this prepared speech. Now, it is never the case that when he's speaking at one of his rallies or on Twitter that he just sort of spontaneously says, hey, you know what, racism is bad. That's not something that's part of his general narrative and conversation. Instead, what he has done is at multiple points, after facing pressure to say something about these issues, he has read one of these prepared statements, and then his team and his allies have something they can point to to say, he can't be racist, look, he said racism is bad. Hmm in this speech that he read from a teleprompter. And that's the role that it plays. That's the role this speech played this week. And I think we're already seeing some of that uh, being lifted up as you know, an argument for, hey, look, Trump can't be racist because of what he said. So, so I mean, there's, there's a term for that kind of rhetoric that, that is pretty popular right now. I mean, that's, that's classic gaslighting. Right. Um, but it, it seems as though people more people, I guess, would be aware of that and, and say, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. I mean, what you're saying really contradicts uh, the things that you've done in the past or don't acknowledge the role that you've played in, in some of these things. Why, why is this an effective tactic? I think two reasons in particular. The first is that I don't think anyone wants to think that the president of the United States is a racist, right? People don't want to have that sense. And that's particularly true among people who actually support him, right? I mean, people who support Donald Trump don't want to think that they're supporting someone who is a racist. And so when he says these things, they're much more eager to grasp onto those things as being representative of who Trump really is than all the things he says, and more particularly, that he does as president. Now, one of the responses I got to the piece I wrote yesterday was, hey, look, the media will never be happy no matter what Trump says about this. You know, they're still going to frame him as being someone who is a racist. And my response to that is, well, the entire point is that a lot of this derives from the things he does as president. Mm. And yes, he can't simply say, I'm not a racist. He instead has to represent through his actions that things are different. Now, the other point that I'd say is that a lot of people don't really understand the way that racism can be nuanced. A lot of people see racism as being simply, you know, someone using the N-word or someone, uh, you know, a, a member of the Ku Klux Klan as being, those are the things that are racist and the more subtle uh, structural forms of racism, which I think are being more broadly recognized of late, are not necessarily seen as something which are representative of racism. And as such, because Donald Trump isn't being as explicit as a Klan member, he's getting a broader pass hmm. on things that are otherwise quite questionable. Hmm. Uh, uh, Sheikah, what do you make of 
the president's attempt this week to say, look, I'm not for white nationalism. And then later in the week to say, uh, I'm the least racist person that you know, after uh, President Obama uh, uh, pointed out the, the, the link between white nationalism and some of these things that are that are happening. Um, is this as cynical as it appears, or is this maybe somebody who really believes much of what he's saying? You know, it's hard to get into Donald Trump's mind, but I imagine it's a little bit of both. I think he sees himself as the least racist person because... You know, he, I think, and a lot of racists will tell you, they judge people based on their individual characteristics. So it doesn't matter if they have some background views of a race or, an, you know, or a, or a group. The fact is that uh, when they meet somebody face to face, they will judge them for the merits. And that's their definition of racism. They don't particularly realize, as you know, what Philip was talking about, that there are structures of racism out there. There are, you know, power structures in which these conversations happen and uh, that we, uh, you know, we have started recognizing, you know, there's sort of this mainstream understanding of these structures and that a lot of people, you know, consider not hewing to that sort of that conversation as racist. And that's an interesting way in which Trump is actually trying to change the terms of the debate and the change the terms of the conversation uh, you know, a lot of us are worried that he's normalizing all kinds of language about immigrants as an infestation and an invasion that, uh, you know, we've not, not, never heard in our in our lifetime uh, in American politics. But to his uh, to to him and his supporters, that just seems like common sense to use a word that came up in your previous segment. You know, they don't they don't see it like that. And so I think there is, you know, a little bit of both. There is some explicit cynicism uh, or calculation and there is just some implicit, under, you know, this thinking that, oh, uh, you know, we are just being honest. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577. 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tom in Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit today. Well, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, I listen to your show here and there. I'm at work. Mm-hmm. We work in a shop. It's kind of <laughs> tense around here these days. Um, I'm a laborer. I'm a common laborer. I am the boss. I'm at the top, but, you know, I'm not educated. I've, I've served in the United States Marine Corps proudly. It, 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 it confuses me when all this hate comes up, but when you're listening to CNN and MSNBC in the morning, the rhetoric that comes out of their mouth... I, it's not journalism anymore. It's mm. just hate speech. I'm lost when I listen to this stuff. I mean, this is the president that we elected, you know, and sure, a lot of people don't like him, but the hatefulness that comes out of the media anymore, it's just mm. the shootings. These shootings were happening during Obama's terms, too, and, and I voted for President Obama. I wasn't real pleased with everything he did, but the cages... He did the cages, too. How, how is it okay for when he was doing it, it was no big deal, but now suddenly my president's doing it, and then the whole world, the whole country's falling apart. Mm. Tom. The invasion. He was calling the invasion. It is an invasion. There, there, the laws, if I'm driving around and I'm drunk, I have, that's against the law. If I'm breaking the laws, we're responsible. Yeah. Tom, I, 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 I really appreciate uh 
I, I really appreciate you calling in and sharing your perspective because uh, I think it is it is a pretty common perspective among people who support this president that that he is not the problem, uh, that the people who are uh, covering him and and criticizing him are the problem. Uh, Sheikah and Phil, I'll give you both a chance to to address that. I'll start with you, uh, Sheikah. Um. You know, this does go to your previous conversation with your previous guest that uh, what in to one group of people like, you know, I'm an immigrant from India. Uh, and when I hear talk about uh, inv- you know, immigrants being invaders or infestors, uh, you know, I hear it differently from the way your caller did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I and uh, people who ca- who are coming from Central America they are not carrying weapons, which is the traditional definition of invasion, right? I mean, these people are coming in peace. They are coming to flee violence. And to us, uh, you know, hearing them them being described as invaders is jarring. On the other hand, from your caller's perspective, uh, you know, he just sees this as a metaphor for something that they are thinking, which is that there's an onslaught of these people coming. And, you know, what better way to describe it than invasion? But, you know, I would still say that there is, I was no fan of uh, President Obama's. I wrote very critically about him. But I do think there was a palpable difference in the way Obama talked about his opponents and the people he disagreed with and the way Trump talks about it. And it's just, you know, it for me personally, it's hard to wrap my head around, uh, you know, how not everybody sees uh, that (laughs) distinction. And, uh, uh, you know, the kind of talk that Trump is engaging in, at least when it comes to immigrants and even to his opponents, uh, you have not seen in America in 150 years. I mean, in the last, you know, in uh, in the early 20th century, when we first got immigration restrictions, and I write a lot about immigration, that you know, if you look at the language back then uh, in how immigrants were described, Chinese were described, Asians were described, that's what Trump's language is hearkening back to. And uh, so this, to me, is something completely, you know, relatively new in American politics. And it is also new that, uh, you know, people are not hearing it the way, you know, they may have heard it even five years ago. Mm. So... Mm. Uh, Philip Bump, uh, uh, the caller said a, a number of different things that 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 he believes uh, to be true about this president and and about comparing this president to the former president. Some of them, I, I know for a fact, are not the case. Uh, we have had more mass shootings, for instance, under Donald Trump. I mean, he's almost equaled the number in the first three years in office that Obama saw over eight years. I'm not sure. You can blame him exclusively for that, but but there there is this narrative that somehow the press is dealing with this inappropriately and and is part of the problem. Sure, you know I'm not going to defend Morning Joe, right? I mean the the caller said these morning shows on MSNBC. You know, like Morning Joe is an opinion show on which reporters appear, and mm-hmm. I get that that blurring is is at times problematic, and I'm not going to disagree with that, but it's an opinion show, and I think that, you know, if you look at Fox News, it's, it certainly is uh, similar, if not if not more extreme. But I do want to point out, to your point uh, about the comparisons with Obama, is that 
the, the caller misrepresented what the issues are, right? And so he raised two issues. He raised the issue of the number of shooting, he raised the issue of these cages, which refers to how migrants are being detained at the border. And the issue isn't necessarily, at this moment, either the shootings or the cages. The issue is instead, was the person in El Paso who murdered more than 20 people at a Walmart motivated in part by the sort of rhetoric that President Trump is encouraging and using as part of his campaign pitch? That's the question. There's no question at all. At no point in time did Barack Obama explicitly use language that was then echoed by someone who committed a mass shooting. Sure. The issue with the cages is, of course, not the cages themselves. It is not the detention itself. It is instead the quality of these detention centers, the extent to which the, uh, the, 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 uh, the lack of resources at these centers is being used as a deterrent. And, of course, going back to last year, the extent to which using family separation as a policy is used as a deterrent to keep people from coming to the United States, those, again, are not equal in what Obama was doing. And I think that what the caller was doing was, in fact, re- sort of uh, resuscitating some of the rhetoric that we hear from allies of President Trump in order to try and diminish the ways in which his presidency has so far been exceptional. Okay, uh, Sheikha Dalmia and Philip Bump, I want to thank you both for being here. Sheikha, we're going to let you go. Thank uh, you. And in the next segment, we're going to talk more with Philip Bump about a big debate recently about how language is used to describe our part of the country. Is Detroit part of the Midwest and is saying it's part of the Midwest somehow racist? Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.